0: Dupuma Sutta, which is the Discourse on the Simile of the saw. This is a sutta which is very famous in the Buddhist tradition because of the simile with which the sutta will end. And the basic theme of this sutta is how to maintain patience, equanimity, and loving kindness under difficult conditions, particularly conditions when one is being subjected to abuse and even physical violence at the hands of others. The sutta unfolds from a particular incident which took place while the Buddha was living at Savatthi. There was a particular monk named Moliapaguna, of who was becoming very, very friendly and associating very, very closely with the bhikkhunis, the Buddhist nuns. And so whenever anybody else would criticize the bhikkhunis in his presence, then he would become angry and upset. And when other monks would reproach him for associating so closely with the nuns, also he would become angry and upset. And when people would speak this praise of Moliya Paguna to the bhikkhunis, they would become angry and upset. And so the Buddha uses this incident as the basis for delivering this discourse on how to maintain, on the importance of maintaining patience in the face of dispraise and abuse from others. And the Buddha drives home the with a partly humorous story he drives home the important point that true gentleness patience and loving kindness is not a matter just of mere appearances of giving a display of patience and humility but it's a matter of inward cultivation, of developing within oneself an attitude of true patience and humility. And he gives this story about a woman in the town of Sabati, a well-to-do woman who had a servant girl. The woman's name was Vedehika and she had a servant girl who wanted to test whether her mistress was truly as gentle, kind, and peaceful as she was reputed to be. And so the servant girl, Kali, one day she would wake up late and when her mistress would ask her why she got up late she would say, for for no reason at all, then first Mistress Videhika became angry with her. Then, the second time this happened, Mistress Videhika became angry and scowled. The third time this happened, she spoke words of anger. And the fourth time this happened, she took a rolling pin and hit the serpent girl on the head so that her head was bleeding and the servant girl went running through the town, showing her bruises to all of the neighbors and saying, "See <laughs> the the kind ladies work. See the gentle ladies work. See the peaceful ladies work." And then the Buddha applies this. lesson to the case of the monks and he says that some bhikkhu may be extremely kind, extremely gentle, extremely peaceful so long as disagreeable courses of speech do not affect him, do not touch him. Under those conditions the Buddha is suggesting we cannot tell whether this person is really kind, gentle and peaceful even though the the Buddha, since he's talking to the monks he takes a monk as an example but we can consider this as applying to any type of person somebody might appear to be very well-mannered very urbane courteous deferential And as long as other people treat him politely and respectfully, then he appears to be genuinely kind, gentle, and peaceful. But under those conditions, we cannot really determine his true nature. The Buddha says, it is when disagreeable courses of speech touch him, that is when it can be understood whether that bhikkhu is really kind, gentle and peaceful. The reason is that a bhikkhu might make himself easy to correct, that is, easy to admonish because he is eager to gain the requisites of robes, alms, food lodging and medicinal requisites. It is when, the Buddha says, it is when a bhikkhu, he says, in such a case, a bhikkhu is not easy to correct or easy to admonish. I'm sorry. He says, a a bhikkhu is not easy to admonish if he makes himself easy to admonish because he has some ulterior motive, because he wants to gain something for himself. And that is because if he does not, if he has no ulterior motive of gaining something, then he might not be easy to admonish. The Buddha says that it is the true case of seeing whether a bhikkhu is gentle, humble, and easy to admonish is when he makes himself easy to admonish because he honors, respects, and reveres the Dhamma. The point is that the reason why the true bhikkhu who's truly gentle, truly humble, why he accepts admonition and correction is not because he wants to impress others in order to gain material requisites for himself or to win the admiration and respect of others. But it's because he has respect and reverence for the Dhamma which means that he makes himself easy to admonish when people criticize him for his faults. He's willing to accept that criticism and to try to change himself because he recognizes that the aim of the Dhamma is to eliminate unwholesome qualities and to cultivate and develop the virtuous or wholesome qualities. And so if one is behaving in a wrong way and somebody comes and criticizes you, sometimes good-naturedly, sometimes roughly, but if they point out your faults and your wrong modes of behavior and suggest ways in which you should change, then you accept his admonition and his advice providing it's correct because you recognize the importance of eliminating these faults and in developing virtuous qualities that one does not have. Okay, that takes us through the material that we covered last week. And now the Buddha comes to the main portion of his discourse, in which he'll introduce a certain theme. It's basically the same theme, but stated more directly. And then he will elaborate that theme through a series of very memorable, very impressive similes. I think the Buddha's advice here is very very applicable to so many of the situations that we face living in the world even if one is living <laughs> in a remote forest from time to time one comes into contact with others and speaks with them and there is the opportunity arises for receiving abuse and harsh speech from others okay so bhikkhus there are these five courses of speech that others may use when they address you their speech may be timely or untimely true or untrue, gentle or harsh, connected with good or with harm, spoken with a mind of loving-kindness or with inner hate. This passage here, actually, apart from showing how one should react to criticism from others. It also gives very good advice and useful advice on how we ourselves, if we wish to criticize somebody else, how we should go about it. And in fact, these five principles that are incorporated in this opening sentence are taught by the Buddha in the Vinaya, the monastic discipline in the case when one monk sees that another monk is falling into improper behavior and he wishes to criticize that monk he says that that if you want to criticize another monk you should go about it under these five conditions you have to know the right time to speak to him not the wrong time For example, if you see maybe he's giving a discourse in front of a large group of people, and then if you come up and you say, excuse me, Reverend Sir, (laughs) but didn't I see you in a a tavern (laughs) the other other day? I mean, if you speak like that, then you're embarrassing the person in front of a large group of people. Or if you see that he's very busy and has to, maybe he has to catch a train for a trip, and then you come to criticize him while he's in, in a rush to leave, then he doesn't have time to reply properly, and his mind becomes disturbed and so one has to consider when one is going to speak to him is it the right time a time when he's alone or with somebody else who could participate in the discussion and if he has enough leisure so that you can discuss the matter without feeling a need to truncate the discussion Okay, then and this is especially in the case of a matter which one might have learned of by hearsay where it's not something that you have direct evidence of some misbehavior on his part but something some other people have told you and maybe they have asked you you should speak to venerable so-and-so about this one should consider whether the matter is true or untrue and if, there's any, if you have any doubts about the accusation, any suspicion that the charges might be untrue, then instead of immediately criticizing him, one might either inquire further about it from others who might have made the accusation, try to trace it back to the original witness, or if this doesn't seem feasible, you could take the person aside that you want to criticize and say that you've heard such and such a report about him and you want to know if this is true so you don't immediately assume that the accusations are true but you investigate before you come to a conclusion and then if the matter is untrue the accusation is untrue then you just let it drop If the matter is found to be true, then the other conditions apply, the following conditions. That is when one takes him up for criticism, one should speak to him gently, not harshly, not angrily. then the next phrase, the meaning might not be immediately evident maybe it's a little too literal atta-sanghita which is translated connected with good and not anatta-sanghita, connected with harm that is your intention in criticizing him is to benefit him not to harm him, not to lead him into harm. So when you criticize him, you do so because you have compassion for him and you wish to lead him to rehabilitation from his faults and shortcomings and to steer him away from the harmful direction in which you see he might be moving. And then the fifth factor seems very closely related to the fourth one, but this seems to deal more with what you might call the tone of the mind in which you speak to him, rather than the purpose or intention. The purpose or intention is to benefit him and to lead him away from harm. The tone of mind is one of loving-kindness metta rather than dosa, hatred or anger. Okay, so this, we can take this as a kind of implicit admonition or advice to ourselves when we wish to admonish somebody else for some faults or misbehavior then even I think husbands can consider this in relation to their wives wives in relation to their husbands parents in relation to their children even children in relation to their parents friends in relation to friends fellow employees in relation to each other if one wants to speak to somebody else speak at the right time Speak about a matter which one knows to be true, or is fairly, at least has some strong grounds of evidence for the matter being true. Speak gently, not harshly. And speak with beneficial intention in order to benefit the person. And speak with a mind of loving kindness. But in this passage (laughs) the Buddha is not speaking about the case where you have the obligation of directing an admonition to somebody else. But this is the case where others are speaking to you. And since others will not always be guided by these ideals of Buddha's teaching even if they're devoted Buddhists. Others may speak at the wrong time, at some time when you might be embarrassed in front of a group of people, when you might be busy, ill, preoccupied with something else. They might speak about something false, taking it to be true, and not even giving you time to object or to explain yourself. They might speak with harsh speech, speech which cuts into the heart and causes pain and discomfort. And they might speak without any beneficial intent, Maybe just speaking in order to release their own anger and displeasure, or maybe because they want to cause you pain and discomfort. And instead of speaking with a mind of loving kindness, they might speak with inner hate. Okay. So now the Buddha gives the advice on how one should maintain one's mind under such circumstances. This would apply particularly when the speech is untimely, harsh, harmful, spoken with hatred. You should train thus. Our minds will remain unaffected that is not getting upset not The literal meaning is being turned upside down and we shall utter no evil words that instead of becoming angry and rebuking the person for criticizing you you keep restraint over the tongue <clears throat> and we shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving kindness without inner hate inner hate Now the Buddha takes off from this starting position in which he has repeated what he has already advised earlier in the sutta. He says we shall abide pervading that person with a mind imbued with loving-kindness and starting with him we shall abide pervading The all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving-kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill-will, that is how you should train. okay now if we look at this passage which contains the Buddha's advice I think we can see a gradual development of the ideas in this passage the first statement the Buddha makes is in a way the most important initial advice when somebody speaks to you angrily or with falsely accuses you of something or speaks harshly, the immediate reaction is to become angry in return and then to rebuke him or to direct countercharges against him. And then one becomes involved in quarrels and disputes, hurt feelings, enmity, malice and if things come to the worst, even physical violence. And so the first step is to put a brake on the mind, because it's the mind that becomes upset, and all the trouble arises from an uncontrolled mind. And so when somebody speaks roughly or abusively, first, put that break on the mind, don't let the mind become affected. Then when you put the brake on the mind, you also have to control the almost instinctive tendency to erupt in counter-abuse. And that is, you should, we shall utter no evil word. And so this side of the teaching deals with what is called technically in Pali vārita, which means restraint. Let me put these two words. Vārita is the word. These are two aspects of sila, of morality or virtue. First is vārita, which is restraint. That is controlling the impulses towards unwholesome action, towards wrong action. And the Buddha emphasizes this side first, since one has to begin by controlling the unwholesome side of one's conduct. And so one begins by restraining the mind (coughs) from becoming upset, and then restraining that almost automatic impulse to erupt into counter-abuse, uttering evil speech. Then comes the positive side of morality or virtue, which is called charita, which one might call conduct, the way one should conduct oneself. And that is indicated in the second part of that first sentence. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving-kindness without inner hate. So this is the positive state of mind, the states of mind, or qualities of mind, that one should arouse under these very difficult and straining circumstances. One should first consider that this person who's abusing you, accusing you falsely, maybe, maligning you, is a human being just like myself He wants to be well and happy and free from suffering. And if he's acting with an angry mind, with that mind of evil intent, then he's just sowing the seeds of future suffering for himself. And so, by thinking in this way, one arouses the factor of compassion compassion for the welfare of that person if the person of course is speaking at a proper time true about what's true gently with the intention of benefiting you then of course one even though one might have to restrain some anger but then one recognizes that he's doing this with a good intention and so one can appreciate what that person is doing and actually feel gratitude towards him for being so candid and open and helpful by pointing out your faults. But in the case where the person is acting perversely, then one will abide compassionate for their welfare and recognizing that that person is a human being like yourself, one arouses a mind of loving-kindness without inner hate. Okay, now that is the, you say, the direct and immediate response to this situation. But now, the Buddha is going to go on to show how this situation can be used not merely as a matter for responding appropriately in these two aspects of sila restraint and proper conduct but how one can can even use that very difficult situation loving kindness and in the practice of loving kindness as I think I explained last week the usual procedure for developing the meditation on loving-kindness when you're sitting leisurely under tranquil circumstances you take your own image first develop a mind of loving-kindness towards yourself then you work with a group of friendly people then some neutral person then, at the end, one takes a hostile person. And in order to function in this situation that's described here, it's a presupposition that one has some experience in developing this meditation on loving kindness. But now the Buddha teaches how one develops the Brahmavihara of loving-kindness here, using that hostile person as the starting point. So starting with him, I think the Pali word is tad here, which doesn't mean the tad Ramana cheetah of the Apidhamma, but it means taking him as the Aramana, as the object or starting point, one then radiates loving-kindness towards that person. One pervades that person with a mind imbued with loving-kindness. Then one takes that mind of loving-kindness since one has aroused it towards an enemy, then one radiates that mind of loving kindness all over the world. When one is doing this meditatively as an exercise in meditation, then one doesn't just immediately go to the world but when there are different approaches, sometimes one will use countries and continents like beginning in with, say, your neighborhood, then the town of Kandy, Sri Lanka, maybe the South Asia, (laughs) all of Asia, then from Asia to Europe, Africa, South America, North America, Australia, until you encompass the whole human world, then animal world, then the Deva worlds, the Apaya worlds until one is encompassing the entire universe of sentient beings with a mind of loving kindness. The other method which the Buddha uses most, or explains most often in the suttas, is to work with the directions. Though it's somewhat difficult, since one doesn't think of directions as containing living beings so easily but one directs the loving-kindness towards the east, west, south, north, above and below until one can send the loving-kindness through all directions simultaneously. But here the Buddha just presents the teaching in a very direct, short-cut manner that starting with him, one directs that loving kindness until it pervades the entire world abundant, exalted, immeasurable without hostility, without ill will that's the usual formula for the Brahmaviharas. and so here it seems that the training has gone from the level of sila to the level of samadhi Okay, and now in the following paragraphs, the Buddha illustrates this point where he shows the type of mind which is developed by five, by I think three similes. suppose this is paragraph 12 suppose a man came with a hoe and a basket and he says I shall make this great earth to be without earth that is he expects using this hoe or a shovel by digging up the earth in one place he wants to make the whole earth disappear and so he digs here and there he strews the soil here and there he spits here and there he urinates here and there on the earth saying be without earth be be without earth what do you think monks could that man just eliminate the entire earth by digging it away say, of course not, Lord venerable sir. Why is that? Because this great earth is deep and immense. It cannot possibly be made to be without earth. Eventually the man would only reap wariness and disappointment. (coughs) And now the Buddha applies that simile, though Number 13 says here, as a number 11, but actually later I discovered that it's not quite so. There's a little variation. In paragraph 11, the Buddha says, we shall utter no evil words, we shall abide compassionate for their welfare, with a mind of loving kindness, without inner hate, We shall abide pervading that person with a mind imbued with loving-kindness. In this paragraph 13, the text says, We shall abide pervading that person with a mind that is like the great earth. And to give the explanation of the simile, the person who comes trying to dig the earth away This is like somebody who comes along and speaks to you roughly, abusively, harshly, trying to make you angry. But if you have developed a mind of metta, of loving kindness through the Brahma Viharas, a mind which is immeasurable, abundant, exalted, without any hostility or ill will then even though that person may utter out just an uninterrupted stream of all sorts of abuse and malign your character in all sorts of imaginable ways it will just not make a dent in one's mind just as that man with the shovel Digging and digging and digging can never remove the earth. Okay, now in the next paragraph, 14, the Buddha gives another simile. All of these similes are very, very nice. (laughs) Now a man comes with paint of different colors, crimson, turmeric, indigo, or carmine, and he says, I shall draw pictures and shall make pictures appear on empty space. So he takes his (coughs) buckets of paint, his paintbrush, and starts painting away on space, (laughs) trying to make pictures, landscapes, portraits, whatever. So could that man make pictures, appear on empty space, even if he's a great artist? And the monks say, no, of course not. And why is that? Because empty space is formless and invisible, so he cannot draw pictures there or make pictures appear appear there. Eventually, that man would only reap weariness and disappointment. And then the Buddha again applies the same passage as in number eleven, but with the variation. He says, "We shall abide." pervading that person with a mind that is like empty space. And so the person who comes along is like the artist who wants to paint on empty space. And the pictures he wants to paint will be angry thoughts in your own mind. But if you've developed this mind of immeasurable loving-kindness, then no angry or angry thoughts or thoughts of upset, de- dejection will become that will arise. Uh, there's four some of these. Okay, the next one: a man comes along with a blazing grass torch and says, I shall heat up and burn away the river Ganges with this blazing grass torch. Would that man be able to heat up and burn away the river Ganges with that blazing torch? Of course not, because the river Ganges is deep and immense and also it's liquid for water and water will extinguish fire. A torch cannot burn up a river." And so again the man would only reap weariness and disappointment. Then again the Buddha applies the <clears throat> simile and he says, here in Bhikkhus you should train thus and we shall abide pervading that person with a mind that is like the river Ganges deep and immense and then the rest is completed as another level And then the last simile in this series, I think the translation is a little speculative, but it doesn't matter. The point comes through that that there is a catskin bag that was rubbed, well rubbed, thoroughly well rubbed, soft, silky, rid of rustling, <laughs> rid of crackling and the man comes with a stick or potsherd and says that I will strike this catskin bag, rub it, and I shall make it rustle and crackle. How do you conceive this, monks? Could that man make that bag rustle or crackle? And the monks say, no, venerable sir. Why is that? Because that catskin bag is rid of rustling, rid of crackling, and cannot possibly be made to rustle or crackle with the stick or the putz Eventually that man would only reap wariness and disappointment. And then the Buddha completes the simile here. It's spelled out in full in paragraph 19 it just repeats paragraph 11, except here where it says below, we shall abide pervading that person with a mind imbued with loving kindness. It should say, we shall abide pervading that person with a mind like a catskin bag. I personally don't know <laughs> what a catskin bag is like, but in any way, any case, it's rid of something rid of rustling rid of crackling and so the mind should be free from the rustling and crackling okay and now the buddha is going to show the in this final paragraph of the sutta he'll show like the highest point or ultimate point to which this development of the Metta Brahma-Vihara can be carried. And actually he will even reformulate the principle to show the correct conduct or true conduct of a disciple. He says, monks. We're in paragraph 20 now. Even if bandits, brigands, were to sever you savagely, limb by limb, with a two-handled sword, one who gives rise to a mind of hatred towards them would not be carrying out my teaching. It seems here that the Buddha is not even bringing in, explicitly at any rate at this point, somebody who has developed the metta-Brahma-vihara, but just to show as a kind of universal statement, what is the conduct of a true disciple or follower of the Buddha, that if bandits come and they tie you up, say, against the tree with your limbs stretched out, and then they come, one come, they come with this two-handled saw. Two men line up on either side of your arm and start sawing away. Of course, it's going to be extremely painful, but if one is a true practitioner of the Buddha Dhamma, then one doesn't give rise to a mind of hatred towards them. Of course this is something which we cannot just immediately stir up by a mental command let me not get angry, let me not feel hatred but one has to train the mind gradually to reach that level and if one begins, little by little, then one can build up that mind of loving-kindness to the point where one can undergo such terrible torment the bandits cutting off first one arm, then another arm, and maybe the leg, one leg, the other leg. but one trains thus. Even when one is in such such circumstances, such a situation, one doesn't give rise to a mind of hatred, but one trains thus. Our minds will remain unaffected and we shall utter no evil words and we shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving-kindness, without inner hate. We shall, this is one can consider that these bandits are cutting you up and they're acting with this mind of cruelty and hatred and savage violence. And by doing so, they are creating so much misery for themselves in the future. So in that way you arouse compassion for their welfare, a mind of loving-kindness without inner hate. Then one pervades them with this mind of loving-kindness and starting with them, making them the foundation, the initial object, then one develops that mind of loving-kindness till it pervades the entire world. Okay, that is like the extreme case for the development of this meta-Brahma-Vihara. But sometimes such cases do arise. I told you last week the story of the Italian monk, the venerable Loka Nata, who was, since many people weren't here, <laughs> and I'll repeat the story. <laughs> he was a very courageous, very a very courageous monk who had traveled from I think from India or Burma to Italy and then he was walking back from Italy to India I think this was in the 1940s even late 1930s with just his alms bowl and a few possessions Then somewhere in Asia Minor, Turkey, Armenia while he was traveling through the mountains some brigands grabbed him and they wanted him to give to give him his money but he told them that he had absolutely no possessions and so they were furious with him, especially since he had these strange robes and a shaven head and they said then we're going to kill you and he said if you want to kill me That's your decision, but I just ask one little kind favor from you. Please give me just five minutes. I am a Buddhist monk and I want to die with a calm mind. So give me just five minutes to collect my mind. And so they were of course somewhat suspicious and hesitant. But reluctantly they said, okay, we'll give you a few minutes. Then he sat down and just, he had practiced for many years metta bhavana. And so he just went into his metta bhavana samadhi and started radiating in his description, I think, he said that he kept on thinking that these brigands were his parents from previous lives. Had, who had benefited him in so many ways and so he developed very, very powerful metta towards them and was just radiating it towards them then after a few minutes he opened his eyes and said okay, now you can go ahead and kill me and even though the brigands knew nothing of what was going on in his mind but there was just some kind of Invisible force between him and them. And they told him, Sir, please continue on your way. <laughs> they just couldn't lift a finger against him. <clears throat> okay, and now the Buddha brings this teaching on the simile of the saw to his conclusion. He says, If you keep this advice on the simile of the saw constantly in mind, do you see any course of speech, trivial or gross, that you could not endure? And the monks say, No, Venerable Sir. And so the Buddha says, Therefore, monks, you should keep this advice on the simile of the saw constantly in mind. That will be long for your welfare and happiness. And that is what the Buddha said, and the monks were happy and delighted with his words. Okay, that will be the, the end of this discourse. If there are any questions on the discourse, then please feel free to ask. I'm curious about uh how you might read I guess what you describe as the social and political implications of mm-hmm. the very last semile here mm-hmm. is a there's a certain sense in which I, I guess I agree with you that this is perhaps the most extreme example, but then there's yeah. an example that might be even more extreme, which is seeing yeah. something about to happen to someone else in you consider. I that. actually I think I dealt with that last week uh, yeah, the the question had come up or did I bring it up myself anyway, I dealt with that and I took the case it was a question of somebody say who sees a mad murderer about to kill his mother, his wife the child and he's in an extreme situation where, okay, this is what I said he should use any kind of force or method to prevent the murder from taking place. Doing so not with a mind of hatred and anger, but of course, if it's an emergency situation, he doesn't have time to start conjuring up his faculties of metta <laughs> but just act forcefully if necessary to prevent the murder or killing from taking place and trying to restrain the possible anger and hatred towards the murderer then I took the case of somebody who the case where there's no alternative the person sees that there's only two choices either I kill that mad murderer or I don't kill him and he goes berserk and kills a crowd of people then I say that this is a very it's a very difficult situation and I would say at that point if a person could think has the leisure to make a choice then he would have to consider (laughs) what are the alternatives that I have let's say he'll have to reflect what is my ultimate objective now if I choose to kill that madman before he kills the crowd, then I'm going to get some akusala karma that's an act of killing. However, though the intention of killing is definitely unwholesome, and though it's an unwholesome karma, the Buddha also teaches that the crucial factor in karma is intention. And in this case, the intention is not so much to take a person's life, but to spare the life of others. And so there'll be unwholesome karma through that act of killing. And maybe that act, that karma, maybe, though I tend to doubt under those circumstances, but at least it has a tendency to lead to a bad rebirth. But there will be so many mitigating factors which will affect the quality of that intention that I don't think it would be a, trime- a very powerfully unwholesome action. Um, okay, now, if the person is really going very, very directly towards Nibbana, I don't know where if these circumstances are ever faced. But perhaps under those conditions, he would just have to accept the situation and say, if that is the, the karma vipaka of those people, then it will have to mature. But since my intention is to go directly for Nibbana, then I don't want to be deflected by taking that person's life. So that sounds like a rather cruel <laughs> decision under those conditions. And the conditions, of course, that I've depicted are extremely hypothetical. But anyway, I just have to say, <laughs> I'm, I'm not a sama <laughs> And I wonder, sometimes I wonder why these questions are not dealt with explicitly in the text. But When you phrase the question in terms of social and political factors, then maybe you have in mind Say, what should people do if they are living under a very oppressive regime? Say, well, a certain... <laughs> okay, I'll say, okay, say, Buddhist people living in Burma. A very oppressive government. Of course, as, so far as they're following the Buddha's teaching, then they should use every nonviolent means possible. Uh, okay, well, the Tibetans living in Tibet even the Dalai Lama always enjoins them to always follow the path of non-violence I would say under those conditions one should you know where one is not in that immediate emergency where it's a question within five seconds either the murderer's life or the lives of a thousand others would it be be fair to say that getting back to those five conditions involving speech (coughs) that the Sutta brings up that of timeliness, truth, gentleness, uh, beneficialness, and loving kindness Hmm. that doing something gently is perhaps the least important of those? I would say so, actually. I would say so. And in fact, I think when the Buddha speaks here of gentleness and harshness, it's He probably has more in mind the frame of mind than the quality of the speech, since the Buddha also himself occasionally speaks to disciples in ways which, just looking at the words, one would say that's pretty harsh.